It is on this day that many people make what we call New Year's resolutions. And people doing that understand that a decision they make right now affects their future. In part, it determines the future. The decisions I make today will determine, in part, my future. If I want to be a faithful husband, I better start deciding today that I'm going to love my wife. If I wanted to make money, which won't happen, but if I wanted to, I would have to start today. I'd have to start planning and scheming. People understand that they must make a decision now, and it is that decision that determines their future. It is also on this day that many people look back on the past year and, and they evaluate things that went on, whether good or bad. They, they take stock. They think, okay, well, was I a good parent this year? Was I a good father? Was I good at work? Or was I a good student this year? Many people will look back and, and recap the last year and evaluate it. And the question for us as Christians is what kind of resolutions should we make? And how should our goals be set for the future? And as Christians, how should we view the past? Huge, important subject. And concerning these things, I think Paul gives us some insight in the book of Philippians, um, beginning in verse 12, chapter 3 through 14. But let's actually start a little bit earlier, just so we can get the context, and then we'll pray. It's such an amazing passage. Philippians 3, let's begin in verse 4. I'm reading out of New King James, by the way, just so you know. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss. For Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And now our text. Not that I have already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God, in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this new year, we would ask for the same attitude that Paul had in this passage. Lord, that we would be pressing on that we would be striving to know you more and more every single day. Lord, may that be our resolution this year. And we ask that your word would go forth powerfully this morning, that you would speak to us. Lord, reveal areas in our lives that need to be dealt with. And Lord, help us to set godly goals, not carnal goals, but godly goals. Lord, ultimately, we want to set our eyes upon you. 
And we ask that you would speak to us about these things this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this passage. It's something uh, that many of us are familiar with. And here Paul kind of deals with those three things I had mentioned. He deals with the present. What should our attitude be? What kind of resolutions should we be making right now? He also deals with how the Christian should look at the past. And he also gives us insight as to our goal. What should be our goal in the future? But let's begin in verse 12. He says, Not that I have already attained or am already being perfected, but I press on. He begins by evaluating his present standing. He's saying, don't mistake me, brothers and sisters, not that I have already attained or have been perfected. He says that because he had previously mentioned the resurrection and saying, hey, I just want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. But he doesn't want anyone to make the mistake of thinking that he thought that himself was perfected. He's saying, no, don't be mistaken. I haven't quite attained that. I have not yet been perfected. He's not saying this out of any kind of uncertainty that he will be resurrected or perfected, but there's that sense of eagerness, there's that sense of earnesty that he's saying, hey, I'm not there yet. He hasn't arrived. What a dangerous thing it is when Christians think they've arrived. Have you ever met people that are in that place? They're like, well, here it is, glory, behold. <laughs> You're like, oh, wow, never thought it would look so different. <laughs> Many people, because of the things they've done in the past or what they're currently doing, they think, ha, I've arrived, I've made it, all done, Lord, see you in a few years. And, and they kick back and um, they don't think about the earnestness that we should have. Paul didn't have that. He said, hey, I have not yet been perfected. I have not reached the closing stage of my life. And because he knew that, it gave him that sense of urgency, that sense of earnestness. Now this isn't speaking of our position in Christ, for we know the Bible teaches that our standing in Christ is perfect. It's complete. In fact, the Bible speaks about salvation in three ways. The past, the present, and the future. First of all, we speak of justification. That is that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. When we, those of us that have put our faith in Christ, at that moment, when you heard the gospel, you responded to it, you put your faith in Christ, and you said, yes, Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Please forgive me. You were, at that moment, past tense, you were justified. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin. Amen? He paid that penalty. It is a done deal. But we are also in this process called sanctification. That is, we are currently being saved from the power of sin. You see, we, the reality is, is we still have our flesh. Can anyone in this room tell me that they haven't sinned since they've gotten saved? Good, I'm glad nobody did. We'd have to slap you around a little bit. I'll have Pastor G talk to you for a few minutes. Then you'll know you're a sinner. We are in the process of being sanctified. That is, we have received the Holy Spirit and He is actively working in our lives, eliminating the power of sin and producing fruit of righteousness. And we have that list for us found in Galatians chapter 5. We're being sanctified. It's a process. 
So I could say, I have been saved, I am being saved, and the next stage is, I shall be saved. And that is called glorification. And that is what Paul is speaking of. He's saying, I've not yet been glorified, I have not yet been perfected. The Bible teaches that we will be saved from the presence of sin. Glory, hallelujah. I am so excited about the day when I will not sin against my Lord anymore. Aren't you? I cannot wait for that day when I don't have this flesh. I can't wait for the day when that battle between the flesh and the Spirit finally ends and I will receive that new body for this corruptible shall put on incorruptible. This mortality will put on immortality, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. What a glorious day that will be. But he's saying, I haven't quite reached it yet. And in light of that, he says, I press on. But I press on. The word press on used here in the original language is very interesting to me as I was studying it. It means to follow or pursue with malignity. Sometimes that same word is actually translated persecute. To pursue or follow after something with malignity. There's almost a a violent tenor used here. There's an aggressive uh, nature to this. Paul's saying, I am reaching for, I'm pressing on, I'm applying force in an almost violent way. Wow, Paul, that's a little crazy for me. I don't know about this aggressive Christianity stuff. I like to just kick back and you know, relax and, and, and not really be straining towards um, you know, what God has for me. But hey, it's all good. I don't have to worry about it. But that wasn't Paul's attitude. He's saying, I'm pressing on. We are called to be aggressive in our Christianity. We are called to be aggressive in our Christianity. A very interesting verse um, that always comes to mind is found in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. It says this, And now, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now this verse has been a source of confusion for some, but I think if we give it a few minutes, our understanding will be cleared up a little bit. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, or literally in the language it would be that the kingdom of heaven is taken up by violence, or it could be translated, the kingdom of heaven is violently zealous for itself, and the violent take it by force. Thayer's Greek lexicon said this, The share in the heavenly kingdom is sought for with the most ardent zeal and the intensest exertion. The intensest exertion. That means that we're putting everything that we have into it. And the kingdom of heaven is just that. It's zealous for itself. And Jesus said, the violent take it by force. Now immediately when we think of the word violent, we think of somebody slapping people around. Please don't necessarily think those kinds of thoughts. But you're taking it by force. You're taking it by force with an almost violent action. And Jesus said the violent take it by force. Those that are pressing in. There was a famous missionary that many of you might be familiar with by the name of Hudson Taylor. And he was a missionary from Uh, the British Isles to the country of China. And it was there in the 1800s that he established a great work that would continue on to this day. It was known as the China Inland Mission, now known as the Overseas Missions uh, Fellowship. 
But it was in the beginning of his ministry that this verse played a huge role in his life and in the future of the work that he would be doing in China. He said, the violent take it by force. I want to be aggressive in my Christianity. It didn't mean that he went out on the street and started slapping people. No, but he was aggressive in his zeal for God. He was aggressive in his prayers. He was aggressive in the sense that he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel to those people that he loved. He was aggressive in the way that he organized church plants. He was aggressive in the way that he would spread the gospel by discipling others. The violent take it by force. This was Paul's resolution. I press on with an almost violent nature. I'm pressing on. And what was it that Paul was pressing toward? Before we think that we need to go out in the streets and start hitting people, let's um, look at what he says after that in Philippians. <laughs> yeah, we're not called to be annoying. We're not called to be arrogant, but we're called to be aggressive. The idea is that we're not lazy. So many times we settle into the state of laziness and we begin to cast off those things that we used to do when we were new Christians, those things that we used to be excited about. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, he says, do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The word sleep is a lazy, lethargic, non-aggressive Christian life. A lazy, lethargic, non-aggressive Christian life. That happens to Christians. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't say, hey, wake up! Wake up out of sleep! Forget about that laziness. Forget about that non-aggressive attitude. Let's get aggressive in our Christianity. He's saying in Philippians 3, 12, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. What is he pressing on towards? He wants to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus had laid a hold of him. He wanted to take possession of all that God had for him. Not just a little bit. Not just like, oh, well, well, can I just get this, Lord, maybe this little slice of the pie? He wanted the whole thing. I love that. It spurs me on. It reminds me that, hey, the Christian life is not meant to be a half-hearted effort. It is to consume every part of our being, our heart, our mind, our emotion, our, our physical strength. It is to consume my life entirely. Paul was pressing on that, oh, I just want to lay hold. I want to grab. I want to get all that God has for me in this life. Ultimately, the resurrection. He said earlier that I might attain to the resurrection. That I might see Jesus Christ face to face. Paul also used this language when speaking to Timothy. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He tells Timothy, lay hold on eternal life. Fight the good fight. Lay hold on eternal life. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
That is the essence of eternal life, is knowing God, is knowing Christ. And that was Paul's resolve. I want to know Christ. As we read previously, he said that I may know Him. He said he counted all things as rubbish, as trash, as damage, that he would know Him. That he would know Christ. That should be the resolve of the Christian today. That we would be pressing on. That we would be doing it in in an almost violent nature. That we would get aggressive, aggressively reaching out for that which God has for us. There's a reason that God has saved each and every single one of you. And ultimately it's so that we can be in His presence and worship Him forever and have a loving relationship with Him. But there's also things that He's called us to do in this life. And I want to lay hold of that. I'm already stirred up by this. I want to lay hold of that. Lord, what would you have for me this year? What would you have for me today? I want to lay hold of that. It's a day-by-day decision. And we know that. It's a day-by-day decision. So often I find myself thinking, oh man, I'm really going to get crazy for the Lord this year and I'm going to start in February. <laughs> it's, it's so, I'm like, oh, after Christmas vacation. Oh wait, it's New Year's, it's over. Um, okay, Lord, I'm going to start now. I remember before I was saved, it, it was the same attitude. It was always putting off spiritual things. Before I was saved, I knew the gospel, but yet... I would always reject it because life was great and I was partying and I was having a great time. But yet whenever I would get into trouble, it was like, oh man, I'd pull out the get out of jail free card and I'm like, oh gosh, okay Lord, if if I don't get arrested this time, then I promise I'll give my life to you. That was my attitude. And so often that seeps its way into my Christian life today. I just want to put it off. I want to do it tomorrow. But no, we must resolve to press on today. Paul also speaks of the past. Read verse 13 with me. He says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. He's saying forgetting those things which are behind. Now this doesn't mean that all of a sudden memories will instantly disappear from your memory. That would be amazing if it did. I have many terrible memories that I wish weren't there. And I'm sure many of you would say, Amen. It's not as though they will disappear, but yet the word means to purposely disregard or neglect or to push aside. Paul's saying, I'm pushing aside those things that are behind. I'm pushing aside the past. In fact, I'm neglecting it. I'm not getting it the attention that my flesh wants it to give. Because that's how many people live today. In the past, whether good or bad. It doesn't just have to be bad, it can be good. Many are constantly condemned by the past, while others are glorying in the past. So much so that they have no realization of what's going on around them uh, today. They're like, oh, in the past. But I would say that many more of us are often condemned by the past. Whether things done ten years ago or, or within this last year. Some of us might even be feeling condemnation this morning. Man, I've, been a, I've blown it as a parent, or I've blown it as a son or a daughter, or I've blown it in this area, I've blown it in that. And it's continually nagged at you every single day. And you're like, oh, New Year, last year was terrible. If you're feeling condemned this morning, the Bible has good news for you. 
Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who are walking according to the Spirit and not the flesh. There is no condemnation. Do you remember? We are justified. Our sins, past, present, and future, have been nailed to the cross. They're done. The penalty has been paid for. There is no need for any of us to pay the penalty for that sin. But oftentimes we feel that, right? We're like, oh man, well, no, God couldn't possibly forgive me of that. You know, uh, I, need to be, I need to be whipped or flogged or something. I need punishment. Please, somebody, punish me. I'm so bad. That's how I feel oftentimes. I think, oh, the, the cross couldn't quite cover that one, Lord, because that one was long and drawn out. And, and No. That's exactly opposite of what the Bible says. The book of 1 John, chapter 1, verse 9, a verse that many of you all know, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some unrighteousness? No, all unrighteousness. He is faithful. It's based upon His ability to do so. It's based upon His faithfulness. And so if you're condemned this morning... Know that there is no condemnation. In fact, God said in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 34, He says, hey, your iniquities, I will remember them no more. It's not as though God could instantly make them disappear, but He neglects them. He disregards them. He sees them as nailed to the cross. The price has been paid. It's done. It's over. That sin is paid for. But sometimes we pick that guilt back up and we play with it or something that's been haunting us for, for weeks, months, or years, the Lord would say to us, shut the door on that. Hang up the phone. Stop. End it now. It's, it's over. It's done with. Confess to the Lord. Get right with Him. And move on. Some people don't necessarily struggle with this as much as they struggle with living in the past in the sense of the good things that they've done. We should never use our past achievements as an excuse for relaxation in the present. We should never use those past achievements as an excuse. Have you ever met those people that are living in the glory days? You know, back in 82, I used to throw a football quarter mile, you know. Or even in the Christian life, many were like, oh, the mission trip of 87. <laughs> well, I'm still glorious from that one, so I haven't done anything good since then, but oh, what a mission trip it was. Even myself, I'll live on, oh, hey, remember that thing I did two months ago? Oh, that was great. I'm not going to do anything spiritual this week that was so incredible. It must cover for at least four-month period. I'm done. I'm taking a break. When we look to the past, it's important not to live in the past. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, He said, No one, having put his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. That is, looking back over his past work, Jesus would say, no, you, you're doing the work, keep on. Keep your eyes focused. Keep them looking forward. Don't look back. He even went so far as to say, hey, if you're one of those guys, it's like, oh, look at, oh, oh wow, look at that. Remember Jesus said, in making reference to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, remember Lot's wife. Looking back often means going back. Isn't it true? We look back on, you know, 
It could be something or a lifestyle we lived one year ago or ten years ago, and we're like, wow, I was somebody back then. <laughs> Boy, hey, honey, look at this picture ten years ago. Didn't I look good? <laughs> you know, and you're like, all right. And we walk around with that attitude, living in the past. There's an important difference between learning from the past and living in the past. And we need to make that distinction because the Bible does tell us to recall to our memory certain events that happened in order that we might be instructed. A good example of this is found in the book of Revelation concerning the church at Ephesus. Jesus said this, Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There, the Lord is calling that church saying, hey, remember those times. Remember your first love. You have fallen from there. Yes, we are to look to the past for instruction, but we are not to live in the past. We are not to be condemned by the past. In fact, Paul says, I forget those things, I set them aside. And Paul did have a good past and he had a bad past. He was that person that persecuted the church, but he was also a pretty righteous man. I mean, if anybody could claim perfection, it was him, right? That list, he's like, oh man, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. He said, I was blameless concerning the righteousness of the law. And yet he says, I pushed those things aside. My own self-righteousness, even those good things in the past, I set them aside. Sure, God used his knowledge that he gained during those years. Sure, God used a lot of things from his past, but he didn't live there. He had his eyes set on something else, or I should say someone else. And he was reaching forward. He says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Interesting thing about this language is reaching forward isn't simply just stretching out. The word means stretching out even farther. Stretching out even farther than you have been. Much like when Britt preaches at this pulpit on Sundays, it's like he's he's stretching out and his arm is just going forever. He's like, ah. Some of us have our hands out. We're like, all right, God, what do you want from me? You know, they're in our pockets. Okay, God, what do you got for me in 2006? And Paul's saying, no, I stretch out farther. Straining towards, I'm using all of my physical power to just reach for what God has for me. Oh, if I could only just... uh, not, again, not that there is an uncertainty with Paul, but there's an eagerness. There's a desire. He's saying, oh, I'm reaching forward to those things which are ahead. We need to reach farther. I've even thought about this past week when I've been in those places where, where I've got that attitude. I, I'm like, I, I've got my hands in my pockets and the Lord's saying, Tim, I want to bless you. I want to do radical things through your life. I want to do awesome things through your family. And I'm like, all right, God, what do you got? You know, I got 10 minutes right now, Lord, speak to me. <laughs> so often I find myself in that place and, and some of you do too. And Paul would tell us, reach out farther, stretch out farther, farther than you've ever gone. May this day begin a new season of fruitfulness in your life because you started to reach out even farther for what the Lord had for you. What was he reaching for? Well, he makes this very clear in verse 14. 
He says, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's that language again. I press towards, I'm, I'm forcing my way in. I'm using all of my strength towards his goal. That object upon which our eyes are fixed. Have you ever had your sights set on something? Man, when I first saw my wife before we were married, I had my sights set. I remember watching her coming down the, the stairs where we met at a, a Bible college, and I remember seeing her, and I was like, I am officially setting my sights on that girl. And so I pursued her, not in a weird way, don't get me wrong, but I was constantly strategically placing myself in an area that she would be at. Like, oh, where is she sitting? Oh, oh, hey, is anyone sitting here? <laughs> I, was, I had my sights set. That was my goal. And if we think today of setting goals for this year, sure, lose some weight, sure, do this thing or that, but hey, let's make our goal ultimately Christ Jesus. Let's set our eyes upon Him. Let us have our eyes fixed upon Him. The idea that nothing else is getting in the way. Uh, many of you have picked up binoculars or a telescope, and you know that when you do that, you can't really see the things that are around you in your peripheral vision. Those things are kind of blocked out, and all you can see is the object that you're aiming to look at. And that's exactly what we are to do in the Christian life. We are to remove those things that would hinder us. As Hebrews says, lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. With some of our lives today, there's sin. And you need to deal with that. And we have an opportunity to do that here today. You can do it any moment of the day. You can confess your sins, repent, get right with God, and move forward. Some of us just have weight. We have these things that aren't necessarily sin, but there's these things that are just bogging us down. We're, we're running this race, and yet we're so weighted down with the cares of this life that we seem to have lost that zeal and that passion for the goal. We're like, oh, goal, oh, right, right, Jesus, okay. <laughs> All right, get my eyes back on track. Let's... Set those things aside and let's set our eyes on the prize. The prize was a word that they would use in the public games back in the first century. Those games that they would have in Rome. And when the athlete would compete and he would win, he would go up to the judge and that judge would give him some kind of a crown or laurel or some kind of prize. And Paul is saying, I am... I am reaching forward towards my goal. I'm reaching forward to this prize, this crown, if you will. In fact, sometimes the word prize is translated judge. So Paul could be saying both things. I'm reaching forward towards that crown, but he could also be saying, I am reaching forward towards the judge, who we know is Christ Jesus. There are many times that Paul uses a race as an example of the Christian life. Turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Beginning in verse 24. In writing to the Corinthian church, he gives us this example of competing in athletic events and he draws a parallel to the Christian life. 
He says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He says, run in such a way that you would obtain the prize. We determine our own pace when we're running a race. And if we don't really care about the prize, then eh, we're not going to run that hard. I know from my few glory years of playing football when I was in junior high, I gave it up later, decided that I hated it, but there was two golden years. I realized after the first year, you know what? There was no glory in it for me. I was never going to be somebody. I was never going to make the touchdown. I was a quarterback, but I was like eighth string, if there is such a thing. Meaning I never got to play ever. (laughs) And so what would happen throughout the seasons is that I would have no heart in the game. I'd be playing, I'm like, touchdown. I wouldn't even know who's winning. I just didn't even care. I was like, man, I'm never going to do anything great. And that really affected how well I played. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't be Tim Chaddock in Pop Warner football. He's saying, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And he goes so far as to say, I beat my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. I beat my body. This is what they would use for boxing glove type things back in those days. They would take these pieces of leather and cloth and they would put bits of metal and glass inside of those and they would wrap them up. And when they would fight, that's how they would fight. It was gnarly. That's the kind of intensity that he is speaking of. He's saying, I beat my body. I bring it into subjection. Lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. So the question is, oh no, am I disqualified? Well, it's important to know that regardless of whether you've sinned or not, it doesn't automatically mean that you lose your salvation. He's not saying that I'm disqualified in the eyes of God. Remember, we confess our sins. He forgives us. It's beautiful. But what Paul is saying here is I disqualify myself in the eyes of the spectators. Because the games at those times were determined by the, the spectator's view of the athlete. Because the spectator was watching them. And at the end of the game, when, that, when the athlete who won the competition would come forward, the judge would look to the spectators and say, yay or nay, thumbs up or thumbs down. And it was the spectator that decided if that person fought well, or if that person ran that race well. Think of it like this. If you're watching a basketball game, and it's your favorite team, and there's this star player, and you're rooting for him, and you're so excited about him, the crowd is going wild. And all of a sudden, you start to see him foul and cheat. But the referee doesn't notice it. And you're like, what ref? Didn't you see that? Didn't you see that guy? He's cheating. He's fouling all over the place. And yet the referee doesn't see it. At the end of that game, 
their team wins. And they hold up the MVP's hand and they say, hey, MVP, in your eyes, that man would be disqualified. Because you saw him cheating. You saw him fouling. And what Paul is saying here is in my Christian life, I bring my body into subjection, lest when I preach to others, people in the congregation or people in the audience or spectators of my life would be able to say, no man, I, I see your life. You go to church on Sunday, but you're drinking all during the week. Or you're doing this during the week. The spectator would be able to say, hey, you know what? In my mind, you're disqualified. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Doesn't mean you can't be forgiven. It doesn't mean you can't move on. That's exactly what we're talking about. Pressing on. But in the eyes of the spectators, they're like, he's disqualified. How would it be if every one of you in Carpinteria saw me doing terrible things this week, wreaking havoc all throughout the community, driving out of my car, playing loud music, you know, hurting people, and then I get up here on Sunday and I'm like, children, love each other. You'd be like, disqualified! I'm not listening to him! That's what Paul's saying. I don't want to be disqualified in the eyes of the spectators, and so I bring my body into subjection. This Christian life is a fight. It is a race. And how beautiful it is that he said at the end of his life in the book of 2 Timothy, right before we believe that he was beheaded in Rome, he wrote this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul was able to say at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, that prize was laid up for him. He was so excited about that moment when he would see his Lord face to face. For we know that in that day, when we see Jesus Christ face to face, Revelation tells us that he will wipe away every tear from our eye. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death. The former things will have passed away. That was Paul's focus. His eye was fixed on that day. I think of the day that my father passed away, who was a Christian, and I remember being almost jealous because he, he finished the race. I mean, yes, yes, I was sad, but I, I was almost jealous. I was like, Dad, you did it. You did it. You fought the fight. You ran the race. You kept the faith. You did it until the end. And I remember that day resolving in my heart, man, Lord, I want to fight the good fight. I want to finish the race. I want to keep the faith. Because the decisions we make right now, in part, determine our future. And I want to resolve today to fight the good fight. C.S. Lewis once said, God is concerned with the ever-present, for it is in the present that decisions are made. It's now that I make that decision. And that's why Paul's language is saying, right now I'm pressing on towards that goal, that prize that prize of the upward call. He was pressing and pursuing and he would not stop until he finished his course. Wouldn't that be glorious if that was said at our memorial, if the Lord tarries? 
Wouldn't that be glorious? Oh man, this guy or this lady, he was just pressing and pursuing until he breathed his last, until he stepped into eternity. I love going to memorials where there was a Christian brother or sister who finished the race well. I love it. It is so beautiful when you just hear the testimony, hey, he was a good father, he was a good husband, he was a good man, he was a good worker, and he was a good Christian, and he finished the race. I love it. Because that saint is now in glory, and he's worshiping God forevermore. No more pain, no more sorrow, none of that. It's all gone. They finally receive the prize. That's the way that our sights should be set this year. Setting our eyes upon the prize. He says the upward call there back in Philippians. That upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That call, the call that God has on my life, has on every single one of your life. It's a summons. It's a call or an invitation to perform a certain thing. That's what God's doing. He's saying, hey, you, I'm calling you out of darkness and I'm bringing you into light. And I want you to be my child and I want you to bear witness of me until the day that you die. That is the calling that God has upon our lives. It's great if you do your own study on that. If you go through the Pauline epistles and you look at the different times he uses the word call. He says to the Ephesians in chapter 1, he says, Oh, that you would just know the hope of this calling. That you know the hope that we have in Christ. That this calling, that God is calling us to do a certain thing is glorious, and at the end, we will receive the prize. Romans eleven twenty nine says that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That means that they will never change. God will never change them. He's not like, oh, hey, guys, I'm going to call you out of darkness to do this great work. Oh, never mind, forget it. God will never, ever do that. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just as Christ's calling on our lives is irrevocable and unchanging. So we should be unwavering in our answer to that call. His call never changes. Why should we then change our lives based upon the way that we might be feeling at that moment? How many of you, not a raise of hands, but how many of you, like myself, will base your Christianity upon the way that you feel at a certain moment? There are many times I don't feel forgiven. I'm like, oh, I don't feel forgiven. Eh. And, and, and I think that, that after I confess something and repent, I feel like there has to be like a good 20, 30 minutes or so where I'm just like, okay, I'm waiting for it, waiting for it. Okay, I still have a weird feeling in my stomach. It's not necessarily a, an emotion. It's a fact, and it's accepted by faith. You know what? This is what the Bible says. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to stand on it. I'm going to accept it by faith. It doesn't mean that we don't learn from our mistakes. It doesn't mean that we don't learn from the past, but we accept that forgiveness and we move on, unwavering, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And it is with this focus that Paul leaves the past and he presses on towards his prize, who is Christ Jesus. What kind of goals are we setting this year? What kind of objects are our eyes fixed upon? And are those things godly? Do we need to remove them? Do we need to get rid of them? Are there certain sins that we need to confess? Are there certain habits that we've picked up that we need to get rid of? 
You know, I don't know about you guys before you came to Christ, but man, my New Year's resolutions were good for nothing. <laughs> I'd be like, all right, today, New Year's, I resolve to be a better person. I'm going to quit drinking and doing this and that. I'm going to quit everything. Next day, I go right back to it and nothing ever happens. But it sure felt good on New Year's Day to say that. People don't have a supernatural power available to them like we do for the Christian. We have the power of the Holy Spirit available to us every second of every single day. And all we have to do is ask. Jesus said, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Even more than an earthly father would give a present to his child. He's saying, hey, I want to bless you with this power. I want to give you this power. It's already made available to you. That resurrection power that Paul said, I want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection. It is impossible for us to get rid of these old lifestyles, these habits, these sins, these weights. It's impossible for us to do that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it funny how certain things seem impossible to us and certain things don't? When I think of, uh, just as we celebrated Christmas, I think I put myself in Mary's shoes when the angel said, hey, behold, you are going to birth a son. You're going to conceive a son. And she was like, wow, how are these things going to be? She didn't go away from that meeting saying, all right, I've got this one, Lord. I'm going to try and produce a son. And his name's going to be Jesus. And I'm going to try real hard. No, it's impossible, right? It's impossible for her to conceive a child apart from the Holy Spirit. But when I think about being a good father or a good husband or maybe evangelizing or or reaching out to the lost in in my community, I think, well, it doesn't seem so impossible. I got this one, Lord. Oh, this guy over here, I got it. I got it all taken care of. I got my four spiritual laws in my back pocket. This guy's done. He's going to be begging for mercy before the day is over. I often think that I have the power in my own strength to do these things. But that is absolutely wrong. And some of us here today are trying to deal with mistakes in the past with our own strength. You're like, no, no, Lord, I'm not going to confess that to you. I'm still going to, just give me another chance. Give me one more month. Give me one more year. I'll take care of this area. No. Confess it. Close the door on that. And ask God for the power of His Holy Spirit to strengthen you for that work. To strengthen you for that task. Ultimately, that we would all be empowered and strengthened for the race that we are all running right now. The race has already started. If some of us don't know that, we need to get with it. The race is already going. Some of you have never actually entered the race. Some of you have never confessed your life to Christ. You've never said, yes, Lord, I believe that you died not just for our sins, but for my sins. And I believe that you did that for me. And I believe that you rose again on the third day. We have an opportunity to do that. During this time of worship, in a few moments, we're going to have an opportunity to partake of communion. A great example on looking at a past event. We never forget what our Lord did on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. And as we partake of the bread and the cup, we are looking at those things and saying, yes, these are a picture of the body that was broken for me and the blood that was shed for me. And we can confess our sins to the Lord and say, thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, now give me the power and strength I need to go forward with this year. For those of you that have never accepted Christ, you have an opportunity to do that today as well. 
We're going to have the prayer team over here. And I would encourage every single one of us, if there's an area that you're struggling with, please get prayer. Please get prayer. Because you'll find that something that you've been keeping secret, the minute that you confess it, there is so much freedom. There is so much freedom. Some of you know that. There is so much freedom in simply just confessing out loud, verbally, your need. And the Lord is going to meet you, guaranteed, in a powerful way. For those of you that just want prayer for strength or wisdom for the year, get prayer. And for those of you that want to accept Christ, go, get prayer. Talk with the prayer team, and they will lead you in that. But let us, as a church, fix our eyes upon the goal, that prize of Christ Jesus. That we would resolve right now, in the present, to press on with an almost violent, aggressive nature. Hey, I'm going to do it, I'm going to press on, I'm going to fight the good fight. And let's push those things aside that are in the past, whether we're being condemned by them or whether we're living in them, the glory days. Let's push them aside and let's move forward with what the Lord has to that glorious day when we will see Jesus Christ face to face and we will receive that crown. What a beautiful day it will be. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for that glorious hope that we have in you. Thank you so much that you died on the cross for our sins. You've forgiven us, but you rose again on the third day to give us new life. That we can look forward to a day when we will be glorified and we will no longer have these sinful fleshly bodies. And there will be no more pain, sorrow, suffering, or death. And you will wipe away every tear from our eye. What a beautiful day that will be. Lord, we want to strive toward that day with the power of your spirit. Lord, help us to get rid of the baggage in our lives. Help us to resolve right now at this moment to press on, to press forward, to run the race that you have set before us, Lord. We know that we can't do this in our own strength. And we ask you now, Holy Spirit, to come and empower us and strengthen us. And Lord, we also have this opportunity to worship you and to lay aside those distractions. And we want to do that this morning. We want to worship you for you are worthy of our praise. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. As we continue to worship, again, I would encourage you to spend this time doing business with the Lord.